Welcome to episode four of Redboard Rewind. Today, my special guest is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Today, we're talking about claiming races, main track onlys, and European shippers. Welcome to Redboard Rewind. to welcome in my special guest peter thomas fornatel pete how you doing today i'm doing great spencer it's really good to be back on the show and i promise this time i'll shut up and actually let you talk <laughs> um how is your first week been post saratoga oh semi-depressed you know it's it really like takes a physical toll um and, and i just kind of want to sleep a lot and i don't feel quite myself it's really it's 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 kind of pathetic actually and, and it's this way every year i did play a little bit of belmont last week and that helped a little bit and i'm very excited about heading up to toronto for the woodbine mile this weekend i think that'll help a lot getting back on the traveling beam but like i talked about on the last show of the Saratoga season with Sean Clancy. It's, you, I really keenly feel a year older at the end of the meet. It's really how we mark the passage of time. So whether you do well or you do poorly, it's just uh, it's, it's always a little bit difficult transitioning back. But we've got so much good stuff coming up uh, on the network and in racing with the whole run-up to the Breeders' Cup that I'll be back to my old form in no time. <laughs> That's very good to know, yeah. With, for everyone knows, I work for uh, the Bet Squad, so I'm back in the kitchen now working my crazy, crazy hours. So I also got to play Belmont. It was sad to see it get rained off that opening day, but there was definitely some great racing over the weekend. So let's get into the races. So we'll start opening day, Thursday. Race number one, very, very interesting race. The winner, I Love Jackson, was a Linda Rice first time uh, claiming with a positive jail move. But if you look down the PPs, the horse had ran six times at this level, Never even hitting the board. So was two to one really value on this winner, Pete? Well, the morning line was six to one, but I was drawn into playing the race, and this was one of the ones that I landed on. Before we go further, though, I know about claiming jail. I've read all the handicapping books, but you've read them more recently than me. Help me out by talking about what exactly you mean by that. So what a jail move is is obviously so we can talk with this one. Uh, Linda claimed it. I have an August 1st race and then ran the horseback on the 6th of the next month. After 30 days, they talk about being able, you get out of jail within those 30 days. If you run the horseback, you have to, uh, run the horse. I believe it's 20, 25% higher than what you claimed it for. Linda obviously weighed out. And a very positive note is when they jump, or this is more like a triple jump going from a condition claimer into a state bread allowance race. So the horse had the opportunity to be dropped, but it's a positive sign. You see it generally as a positive sign when a claiming trainer opts to move up in class rather than go down in class once they have that option. Especially someone like Linda, who's 28% off the claim. And if you use DRF formulator, uh, I don't remember how many stars is, but if you do first off the claim, 31 to 60 day layoff dirt routes, She's 39% with a positive ROI. She's 7 for 7 this year in the money with four winners. So, so 
for me, what brought me onto this horse was probably a pace angle as much as anything else. I, I mean, I take your point about the the value I, I don't think was probably there. The first race of the meet, I kind of wanted to play it. I would have, I could have easily passed the race, except for the fact that I saw two things that interested me. There was a pace angle in that I didn't see much of it, and I really didn't like the favorite number five southern king who i think for a lot of the betting was in the even money range i think ended up drifting up but this is an angle that i like a lot you'll see it on you actually see it a lot on days where races are, are washed off i felt like the market was maybe overreacting to the horse's last race on a different surface right so southern king to me was a horse the race doesn't have speed this horse doesn't have speed and I just, I kind of couldn't wait to bet against. I thought they were betting a, a grass number last time and betting on the excellent connections of Todd Pletcher and Joel Rosario. So my eye immediately goes to, okay, who's going to be in front of this horse when they turn for home? And the two horses that, uh, that I came up with were the one who was listed. They basically listed one, two on the time form U.S. pace projector. And that was Red Zinger, the six for Gary Contessa. And then number two, I Love Jackson, we mentioned for Linda Rice. Linda Rice, first off the claim, almost an automatic include for me in a lot of areas. But you throw in this, you throw in the pace angle and it's interesting. I mean, I don't think it's technically correct to latch on to a horse at that price just because somebody else in the race is over bet. But I just was being a little bit lazy. I figured there was going to be value uh, betting against that favorite and i sort of lucked into having the the first race winner at, at belmont if that if that answers your question it's actually funny with red zinger uh a lot of things that i do when looking in the career box so in his lifetime he had 10 10 starts only one win and then seven underneath placings for those horses this horse went off a little bit higher than five to two uh, I just try to beat these horses a lot, and he did go off the third favorite, and he finished off the board. And I love Jackson to me with that big positive jail move. Uh, I think Linda probably thought this horse was going to get uh, in the last race when it won by seven. I think Maselli knew the horse was going to get claimed out, and Linda had the nice work, forty-eight flat. Small turn back. The, the only thing that scares me, and a lot with with class for me, is horses that have raced a lot at the same level and lost a lot. So this horse, not so much this year, but last year, had so many tries to this level and didn't really win. So to you, was it, the, was it just the pace dynamic and then maybe the surface? Well, I mean, being in a new barn also obviates some of the concern about the previous tries at the level, right? I mean, Linda Rice, we know, tends to move horses up. Um, or certainly in, 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 I mean, she's moved horses up off Bill Mott, you know, clearly yeah. that the, the chance that this horse was going to be a different animal, uh, was there. So I didn't need to be honest. I didn't even really look at it. I generally, while I understand looking at how the horse has performed at the same level in the past, I would say an operating principle for me is that pace and the figures I expect the horse to run they're going to mean a lot more than what class level the horse has competed at. Now I'm not saying class doesn't matter. I'm not one of those guys, um, <laughs> but I, I do think it matters. And I think you can find clues, but you put in the fact that I think the horses are going to run what they're going to run and you're in a new barn. And honestly, like 
I first knew that the horse had been beaten that many times at the level when you told me. It's not even something that I registered, really, and it wouldn't have bothered me if I had. Another thing, another, like, subtle class angle, as long as we're talking about that type of thing, I will say this. I don't mind a horse like when you're talking about the career box and you look at I Love Jackson. I don't mind so much the the horse who's 13-2-1-0. I kind of prefer that pattern in the career box as opposed to the red zinger 10-1-4-3. 10-1-4-3. 10 starts, one win, four seconds, three thirds. That just screams kind of pack animal to me. I still used red zinger. Again, I thought I could be a little more inclusive because of not liking or not needing Southern King for a penny and the Timeform US Pace Projector, another pace source I use, both had Red Zinger on the lead. So I wanted Red Zinger on tickets, but my my vast preference was for I Love Jackson in this spot. All right, so let's jump into the next race from Thursday. This would have been race number five. And surprisingly, and I see this all the time at Saratoga, I believe the two that surprised me the most was Robertino Diodoro and David Cohen won with a couple MTOs at like above $10 prices. And this one that we have today, the race was a uh, optional claiming 40,000 N2X for six furlongs on the turf, the Widener turf course. And the winner was number 14 Bertranda. Now, the uh, the connection, the jo- or the trainer is usually one who we see out in the Mid-Atlantic. But this horse... I mean, eight wins or eight starts, only one win, one second on a wet track. But I like horses. Another one, first off the clan for a decent training barn, and it's an MTO. This horse wanted to run in this spot on the wet track. What were your thoughts on this race? Well, for me, the thing that brought me a little bit towards this horse. This is not a race I bet, but the uh, I definitely get following uh, Merkin. Cantor Mossi, I'm hoping I'm, I'm saying that right, the Turkish uh-huh. uh, Turkish trainer who's come here very young, has had a lot of success right away. Even Saratoga, a meet where you wouldn't necessarily expect more of a claiming level trainer to do well, did pretty well in limited sample. I'm at a point with him where I'm pretty respectful at the lower claiming level. When you When I respect a trainer as much as I do him, and this was another first off claim situation. And then you throw in the fact that the horse was entered to be the only horse in the race, I believe entered to be MTO. That would be enough for me not to want to oppose the horse. And when I look at a race, there's sort of the idea of the first thing I want to do once I establish any kind of pace angle is make eliminations. And I would not eliminate this horse just based on those things. Would I want to latch on at the short price? No, I wasn't excited enough to to want to get involved in this spot. But when you're looking at connections you respect and they're making a move, they're making a, a first off claim move and they're entering MTO. And you also have the fact that this horse had a little bit of speed um, on paper and projected to be outside of other speed. I like that too. My problem with the race was I, I just saw plenty of other pace in the race. I couldn't really make heads or tails of this race when I designed it. So wasn't a play for me, but this is not a horse I would have talked anybody off. And I think it's wise to pay attention to these sort of lower profile barns who sort of outperform, you might say, what their stock is. They had that claiming series in the winter 
at Aqueduct where, for, for trainers with less than 20 stalls or whatever it was. And, and uh, Cantamarcy won it. And that, that sort of put him on my radar and just somebody that I respect. And I'm not going to let beat me in spread races unless there's something about the horse that I specifically don't like. Let's put it that way. Now, if you look at the way the race broke down, betting-wise, this horse actually went off the third price. Uh, Sadie Lady went off at just above five to two. Sunshine Gal was almost three to one, and this horse was seven to two. It was also the only horse in for the claiming tag of forty thousand dollars. It has four wins so far in its career, and that's what made it eligible for the tag. Um, when I look at something like that, third price on the board for an MTO, to me, it's almost an automatic bet. It's the same thing happened in, happened in the negative way. For the last race, Turco Bravo ran at Saratoga. He was seven to two against like four turf horses, and I said, "How is this horse?" I think it was like nine to two or four to one. I could not believe the price we we're getting. He obviously didn't run that good. It's a much older horse in that aspect. But I mean, main track. What what makes you want to play MTOs? Like, is there any specific spot that you're like, okay? This is the spot I got to play in MTO. Doesn't even matter what the other horses look like. Or you do have to look at the whole race and really digest what's going on. You're always going to do better if you take a holistic approach in your form study and your handicapping and you look at horses as individuals. That said, off the turf races, which is where you're going to see the MTOs, obviously, by definition, you're going to see a lot of horses who are overbet on turf numbers who don't necessarily want to run on the dirt. Sadie Lady being a possible example of that. I look at Sadie Lady and I see numbers that are better than Bertranda's numbers recently, but they're all earned on turf. And in fact, I have a note that Sadie Lady was actually scratched in an off-the-turf race at Saratoga on July 18th. So that says to me, maybe they're just saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to try to get a race here. I'm not saying I wasn't clever enough to concoct some play betting against Sadie Lady, but you see this type of dynamic so frequently where they leave in these horses that are really turf horses. They need the start, whatever reason. They've been hustled to stay in the race. Whatever reason, they're in there, and they're being bet purely mathematically based on numbers that aren't relevant to the situation. With MTOs, I don't bet all of them, not by a long shot, but when you when you have that confidence that they really want to run, they're in that spot for a reason, I feel like you can certainly do worse than include them. If I'm sort of on the fence about whether or not a horse fits and it's an MTO, I'm going to be more inclined to put that horse in. But sometimes there's plenty of them. Uh, there's not an example in this race, unfortunately, but there's plenty of those that, for whatever reason, I just feel don't uh, aren't going to make the cut. I, they're not automatic uses, but it is a relevant data point you should be looking at. And I like the point that you made. I made the point in the other race about mm. l- worrying less about the class and looking more at the at the numbers. But at this level, when you see this mayor who's actually gotten four wins and has earned or going into the day had earned 240,000 and you look at what she's running against obviously everybody else has two wins and you look at the money they've earned and you can make a class angle for Bertranda too it's not my primary way of looking at the world but when it comes time to splitting hairs and figuring out which horses I want to keep on my side or which ones I'm willing to oppose that's a factor that I'll look at as well way down the line but sometimes in racing, you get to that point where you've got to start splitting those hairs and deciding which horses stay in and out. And Bertranda certainly had plenty of reasons to stay on tickets if you were on the fence. 
Now, obviously, the first two race examples we've talked about have both been first off the claim. Is there any certain, you know, maybe I don't want to say second tier trainer, but obviously Linda, I would say, is probably first tier. Are there any, you know, lower profile connections that you really like playing first off the claim? Yeah, I don't think you can call Linda Rice lower profile at this point. That's for sure. Definitely one of the uh, one of the, the main uh, day in, day out uh, claiming operations in New York. I nobody leaps to mind honestly. I see trainers who I really like with more, you know, everyday type horses, Gary Gullo, somebody that I always respect, uh, gets horses ready to fire first out off the bench. But I mean, I think you got to look at it individually and I think in a lot of cases the the claiming outfits and it's no different with the the barns with the the top level stock either they're it's a little cyclical and they go in streaks and you've got to look for where they're pointing and you'll all come up with times where you'll notice a certain barn cycling up and want to keep them on side or other times where it seems like, okay, maybe they just had a big meet and now maybe they're going to go in the other direction. They run out of conditions or whatever and aren't going to keep going great guns. But it's, it's one of those dances you have to do on your toes and just pay attention to what you're seeing on the racetrack. And when I'm in tune uh, with what's going on out there, I feel like I pick up on that stuff, but it's not like I have a particular bank of lower profile trainers that I'm always going into. It it, it all kind of depends on the specifics of what I'm seeing happening on the racetrack and what I'm seeing in the PPs for a given race. Now you were talking about uh, barns when they're cycling up. Has there been a recent example of somewhere where you could say like, oh, I definitely see this barn is cycling up at this point, or maybe a top barn that is cycling down that you were trying to avoid? The first thing that popped to mind is, it, it, and it, it, the Saratoga meet at this point is such a blur. But there was that moment there where the you you started to see these runners from the David Donk barn outrunning odds, and they, absolutely it, it signaled itself in kind of a funny way. It, it doesn't always signal itself with a big win. You can sometimes see a barn run even a fourth at twenty-five to one or something with a horse, just a horse that runs really well that didn't project to necessarily run that well when I was running the race on my head in paper and then that signaled within a week of that happening i think there there were a couple of winners out of that barn and it was something that i was able to to keep on side and 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 do really well with the other example i think about the del mar show and when frank scatoni was on recapping the del mar meet and he talked about all those barns uh, peter miller was at the top of the list that had clearly targeted the del mar meet and he was looking going forward over the course of the next few weeks to maybe figure they were they'd fired so many bullets that they were out of conditions and maybe something to play against but i i just steal that example from him because i haven't it's nothing that i've really noticed happening in the first couple of days at belmont but it's i definitely believe it's a real thing i mean some of it people can go you can go too crazy with it and see one example and then start making decisions based on that and, and that could get you into a tr- into trouble because a lot of it is just simple regression and progression to the mean and you know you, you could if you flip a coin a hundred times and you go back and you look you'll see you'll see pattern quote unquote patterns you know heads didn't get hot there were just eight heads in a row because that's going to happen at some point so you got to be careful and try to discern what is signal and what is noise when you're looking at these type of results. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, as much as I think this stuff is important, I, I really consider it more of like a tertiary factor in my handicapping. But 
it can be very useful, especially, and I'll get back to this idea again, when it comes to like a spread race and whether you want to keep that horse on your side or you're willing to fade it. That's the kind of thing that can help me make those decisions. Now, uh, for Belmont for the first week, I uh, using Formulator, I like to go into the jockey and trainer standings a lot. And talking about cycling up, obviously, Joel Rosario had a very good first week. Uh, Sunday, he had four winners. So this next Wednesday, Thursday car, I'm really going to be focusing on even not, not so much upgrading, but definitely giving his all of his shots a second look. And then someone maybe on the outside, uh, Eric Cancel, 0 for 10 for the so far for the meet, but four of the horses that he hit the board with were all over 10 to 1. Do you ever look at stuff like that where you kind of like see the same jockeys hitting the board at big prices and do they kind of like start making their way into underneath mutuals? Oh, that's a great idea, Spencer, for sure. When you can find a, a rider who's maybe not getting the mounts but is in tune with how a track is playing, that's a great way to potentially fill out your tries and supers at the least and sometimes to, to include for, for all the marbles, especially if you see there's something going on with the racetrack that maybe a certain rider's in tune with that certain other riders are not in tune with. I think it's it's very smart to pay attention not just to trainers and, and their short-term spurts, but also with riders. And Rosario's a perfect example of that because he's very, he's very streaky. Um, and I think it's just a hypothesis. It might have to do, his build is very different than a lot of riders. And I've heard it speculated that, um, like so many jockeys, but especially one built so, so strong, um, like Ros Rosario is, that there's times when weight becomes an issue. And if you're too worried about your weight and what's going on in your body, it makes sense that you might not be able to be as, uh, as focused on just doing the best absolute work you can all the time on the track. That's just logic. And I'm not saying that's definitely what it is with him, but whatever the case, there, there are times when he, it just seems like another rider. And then there are times when he really seems like he's just on point in the zone, whatever you want to call it, where I agree, you don't necessarily have to upgrade all the mounts, but you should really give a second thought. And if there's a decision to be made, he's probably going to make the right decision. And he's just got that. He's got a great combination of being to able to get out of there from the gate and also to finish. That makes him somebody who I, I typically want to be paying extra attention to. I don't want to be getting beat by Joel, Joel Rosario ridden long shots. And it will happen. If I don't like the horse, I don't like the horse. I'm not going to, uh, he's not a magician. I'm not going to put him in there for everything. But again, it's one of those things where when you're making those, those fine decisions that we have to make, especially when constructing exotics tickets that I'll definitely pay attention to. Now, before we move on to Saturday's races, I just kind of wanted to bring up a basic handicapping uh, contenders. So recently I've, my girlfriend has started to like try to learn the game of handicapping. Which I, heard, been... I heard she was, uh, I heard she was handicapping circles around you at Saratoga. That was the rumor that, I heard. That, that's, that's pretty much what <laughs> she was doing. Um, the one thing that she's having problems now with, maybe we could talk about to help other newbies or even advanced players. When you break down a race of, let's say, 10 horses and you get down to about four, and now you're having the problem to break them down by first, second, third, and fourth, what are kind of the stuff that you do that breaks up your contenders once you've done your primary handicapping process? It's very difficult, and you can't always do it. You know, sometimes if you truly like those four horses equally say you might just come to the conclusion that there isn't a bet because you know I'm not a big fan of boxing four horses when it comes to splitting them up I mean 
you either just have to keep grinding on it and come up with a reason why some of them, maybe two of them are going to be advantaged by a pace setup or something and try to split them that way. Or you could do something more mathematical and less selection oriented and just press the ones in combinations that are, that are the better price. If you truly can't, if you truly can't separate them and your teeth itch, when you think about boxing four in an exacta, you know, you could do a lot worse than taking the one or the two of those four who are the bigger price and, and keying them first and second and using the others a little bit more defensively. So I think you can get to it by one of two ways. You can get to it by your bet construction, or you can get to it just by doing further levels of of handicapping I, I worry that by just trying to grind on it and separate them through handicapping a lot of the time you're go, you're going to end up you're going to end up a little bit frustrated if you do it by a, on a more mathematical basis I, I think it's easier after the fact to feel justified and say hey well based on my opinion and the prices I did the right thing whereas if you decide oh well but that trainer had a favorite two races ago who ran out so I'm, I'm gonna leave this one out too and press the other one that's that just seems like a recipe for chasing your tail but sometimes that said sometimes you can find you can dig a little bit more and find some information with some real signal that you know i don't know maybe maybe it has to do with how the trainer does at a certain class level or or a decision the fact that the the jockey took off the horse you were looking at to ride one of your other contenders there might be enough signal in that to try to separate them that way it's it's uh, but that's much more of an art than a science and something that i think people people struggle with a lot and i've just gotten to a point where i try in that situation to bet a lot less or even not bet when i when i find myself stuck on those kind of things you know it's the great advantage that we have is not having to play every race and if i can when there's four contenders take far more of a back seat and then when there's you know one horse i like is a key and one i want to protect with and that's how i see the race and i can't see anybody else winning makes a lot more sense for me to bet a lot more money in that latter situation than when there's four i'm having trouble separating now for me i know that with this program we're trying to do we're trying to bring up handicapping books so uh james quinn the complete handicapper i edited that book did you i did (laughs) Uh, it's one of the newer books probably on the market uh, early 2010, 11, 12. Uh, he has a thing where he talks about just really, really fundamental handicapping, the four pillars, pace, speed, class, um, form. speed, and form. And uh, he literally has almost like uh, two, two check boxes. That's one box, and then the next box would be post position, weight, connections, and like – the stuff on the right hand side like that once you have your contenders that's now how you break them down like to me then that would almost pertain to like if i see javier with chad that horse will always probably go ahead for me over someone like kendrick carmouche and maybe gargan which in some ways it will work out in some ways it won't but usually for me if i see a 22 percent rider against a nine percent rider that to me is a big enough difference to where that'll force me to make a move on where the horses are going in order. I worry that that information is so priced in that it doesn't necessarily get you ahead of the game by doing that. I agree that's a very human uh, thing to do is to look at the connections and have them tilt you one way or the other. But, but I do worry that's one thing the crowd is so good at is knowing 
who the leading rider is or, or who the top trainers are. So I wouldn't, I mean, I get it and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I, I worry that there's not a lot of equity in it. And generally speaking, I agree. I try to operate from the fundamentals and then bring in those other factors. But sometimes the edge can come from those secondary tertiary factors, especially if you can get ahead of a hot rider or a hot jockey before the rest of the world. And certainly with a bias, if you can be on the bias before other people are on the bias, especially a strong one, well, there's times that's going to dictate the outcome of races to the point where the horse with the fourth best ability figure is the one I think is the most likely winner because they've got you know a bias in their favor so I love the Quinn approach and I think it's so smart for people learning the game especially those of us with like a little bit of a sympathy for academia right like who, who don't mind study the way he puts it forth it's so it's so logical and it really helped my brain to to learn all those rules but once you know those rules you also you will find times when it's appropriate to to bend and or break them as you continue to develop as a horse player oh i really appreciate that pete should we jump into saturday's races the next race i would like to see covered is race number six it was on the inner turf it was a fifty thousand starter allowance six furlongs on the inner turf course that was won by number five a dixie twister uh horse for course angle maybe uh the horse had five starts in the belmont turf course four wins one second that does leap off the page when you go back and look at the race and you see the, the four wins locally Horse for Course is one of those funny things where I definitely believe it's real, but I think it becomes very easy after the race to say, oh, well, it's a Horse for Course. That's why the horse won. And I think obviously that's a little bit of an oversimplification. You know, maybe it's a reason why you wouldn't have uh, allowed yourself to get beat by the horse, but it's not necessarily in and of itself something that, that I would say, oh, well, I definitely have to include this one. I mean, one thing about a Dixie Twister, I look at the the start of the last race. I mean, this is a horse who's got speed, who sort of stumbled out of there on August 14th at Saratoga, and I think uh, basically lost lost all chance. So off the trip, I'd be I would have been inclined to include her just because the market I think is still evaluating her off the figure she earned last time, and maybe evaluating her like she's a horse in a little bit of decline relative to the past ability she's shown. But to me, I didn't see that as a case of decline. I saw that a case of a, as a case of a horse who just, who had a, a poor start and I was willing to forgive as far as that went. Now, I think a lot of people, and this is, I actually like this angle. Uh, Mark Kramer's book, Thoroughbred Cycles, which I've brought up plenty of times in the first four episodes. He talks about horse for course being, not just a horse that wins each time, but at the right odds. So if you look back through, this horse won at 660, 245, 1380, that last win being with Dylan Davis in the saddle. That to me shows that the horse wasn't always the best on paper. And really like that drives the extra nail home where it's not just so much uh, newspaper of record, let's say in her two-year-old year where she would just go out and blast horses away and you just knew it was just the best horse in the best day. Do the odds mean anything to you now knowing that with this horse? I think it's a very good point, and I do like to see horses that acquit themselves well when they're bet and acquit themselves well when they're a little bit better of a price. I mean, I think 
if a horse only wins when it's an overwhelming favorite, that that does that isn't as impressive as a horse that can go ahead and and win when they're not necessarily uh, the the quote unquote supposed to win. It's not something I look at a ton, but I do think there's probably at least a little bit of signal in it. And it I I don't know. Um, for me, it doesn't really necessarily just relate to horse for course. I just want to I want to see in general when a horse runs well, wh- what were they what were what was the horse supposed to do? And it's also easier. You know, certainly, I'm not going to hold a twenty to one loss against a horse as much as I am a horse who loses at two to one. And just looking at Dixie Twister, and you see those last two wins. I mean, six point nine to one, thirteen point eight to one. This is a horse that this is a horse who had uh, in recent times a propensity for outrunning her odds. And it is something I think you can look at. And I think it's also funny if you look, since we are talking about claiming races earlier, both races won at $32,000. Usually when horses, you know, win at a 32 level, you'd expect them to jump up to the 40. This horse came right back and won by even more the next time out. That looks like it was more pace aided than anything with the blue fractions being up close to the pace. Are you ready to talk about the Euro shippers? I know that I was trying to find a decent book on talking about European shippers coming over. And you kind of gave me a good one earlier this week. Do you remember what that was? Yeah. The Alan Schubach book, global racing it's old now, but I think it does a pretty solid job of just giving you the basics of the racing calendar throughout the year. A lot of the rules have changed now. I mean, we see horses coming from obscure French tracks and getting into chad brown's hands and becoming graded stakes winners it's so you can't i don't feel like you can downgrade some of the more obscure form the way that you used to be able to but i do think it'll help people to take a look in the pps and know you know how important it is if horses are racing in uh group races in england or especially or if they're not group races racing in racing at Newmarket or york York and there's certain courses too in England that I just feel like are particularly good pointers for North American form. York being one of them because it's left-handed, because the ground is often firm. Chester being another one I love as a pointer for USA form because there's so much running around a bend. Horses who run well at Chester typically are going to run well in the United States in my in my reckoning. And then also to know that like you could be a group winner in Italy, but like. Italian racing is so bad now that like those horses I wouldn't I wouldn't expect them to necessarily be competitive at all with horses in North America unless they have some form proven from England or Ireland but I do think you can get a decent overview if you want to track down that shoeback book did you get your hands on a copy I have not yet, but I am searching Amazon as soon as we are done with this podcast. <laughs> I should look. I'm looking at my shelf now. I see one copy over there in the other corner of the Brooklyn bunker. I may have an extra. Let me. I'll poke around when we get off air and see if I can save you a few bucks. But uh, it's worth taking a. It's worth taking a look. I think student of the game that you are, and anyone out there who's really interested in reading handicapping books and interested in learning more about European shippers. But I mean, European racing, it's pretty, it's really not that hard to follow. I mean, I think if you go back now and you look at PPs of some of the shippers who appear here for like the Breeders' Cup, for example, you'll you'll see many of the biggest races throughout the year, certainly the ones that are relevant for shippers. And you'll just get a sense of which the most important courses are. But again, it's not like the old days where I feel like you could take a 
a dimmer view of some of these horses coming from more obscure places. These days, it's really important to figure out who, who the owner is, whose hands they wind up here in the U.S. But we did have some shippers that were, were a little bit trickier. Uh, if you didn't know, th there were some clues if you knew what you were looking for when it came to those races on Saturday. So that will bring us into race nine at Belmont Park. It was run at mile and three-eighths on the inner turf. It's the Jockey Club Oaks Invitational. This is the third leg of the Triple Crown Series for the females that Naira had come forth with. And right there, right in the gate, Edisa for Flavian Pratt and DeRoyer Dupre Aline. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Alain DeRoyer Dupre, I believe. So... I thought that this horse was very interesting. I think that Flavian Pratt picking up the mount, he also had two winners that on Saturday. I like it when out of town, even if they're big or, you know, small time jockeys come over and can get, you know, a brace or a double uh, racing at the, at the track for the day. What did you think of this horse? I mean, this was the one I picked on the show and just to see those world-famous Aga Khan silks on a race course in America, that alone uh, made me stand up and take notice. And this is a barn that, that's had plenty of success before with shippers, and I, I, just, I respected the form immensely. You've got very competitive efforts in a Group 3 and a Group 2 at important uh, French tracks, Deauville and Saint-Cloud before that. I mean, she just fit on form like an absolute glove and bred to the purple uh, kitten's joy out of uh, the Rock of Gibraltar dam. And she was always going to be very tough to deny. And Pratt definitely uh, improves the package. We talked with Frank Scatoni on that Del Mar recap show about how, you know, he he didn't use these words, but you got the distinct impression that if Pratt's riding, he's upgrading a length in terms of his acumen riding everywhere. But uh, but I think particularly on the turf and you just ended up with a we obviously didn't have the big star on the USA side, unfortunately, concrete rose. But I mean, you know, I'm not telling you anything that anybody didn't know at eight to five, but Adisa was still a decent bet to me at that price. And she managed to do the business. Where do you think Concrete Rose would have fit in in this type of race with Adisa and Wonderment? So it actually ends up being the Europeans running 1-2 in this race. Do you think that for the, at least the American side that the Phillies are a little bit weaker than the boys? Well, that's very hard to say. I mean, three-year-old Phillies have such a great – a lot of Americans might be surprised to learn what a great record European – uh, Phillies have three-year-old Phillies specifically in a race like the Arc. Now, granted, they're getting a big weight break, but the 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 record is such that you you definitely get the sense that they're they're just really getting good and cycling up in the fall. So they're they're you don't really see the divide uh, between, especially at the weights they're going to run. You you wouldn't look to downgrade a European Philly this time of year versus a European Colt really at all in my mind. But as far as how Concrete Rose fits, it's it's very difficult to say. I'm such a big fan. I'm not going to sit here and say that she wouldn't have won. But you were looking at a, a, a turf course with serious give against some serious rivals. It would have been close. I mean, I, I think I think Concrete Rose would have been right there. I think it would have been great fun seeing her try. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been betting against her. But I can't. And I'm but I'm also not going to sit here and say, oh, Concrete Rose would have would have won by three. If you're looking at speed figures, as Muggsy the handicapping Labrador. You 
can probably hear her clattering on the steps in the background. <laughs> chooses to join. She never comes down for my show anymore, Spencer, but she comes down for you. So that's a so that's a compliment. But that's a raving compliment. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 hard to say. In speed figure terms, concrete rose probably would have looked pretty good. I think the winning figure here was in the was in the high eighties, right? Eighty seven. Yeah, and uh, what does concrete rose usually run? Probably a low 90, yeah, somewhere in there. That's what I'm thinking. But I don't think it, it necessarily would have been as simple as that. It would, have been, it would have been great to see. Hopefully we'll get a chance to see Concrete Rose and how she stacks up against some of these European fillies at, uh, at some point in the future. So race number 10, this is now also the final of the, uh, the boys' Triple Crown. This is the Jockey Club Derby Invitational. Now we've seen... Obviously, two separate winners for the first two races. And now in this race, we have another, a third different winner. And it was Spanish Mission going off, just winning by a nose over Pedro Cara, but two to one. Yeah, another another very logical favorite, another horse that we uh, we talked about on the show not one that uh, not one that's going to get you uh, not one that's going to get you rich, unfortunately. But uh, Jamie Spencer is just he is such a good jock and a really good um hold up rider somebody who uh, particularly good at when it comes to 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 being able to to close and to find the right spot and come into the race i mean on form coming out of uh coming off running at goodwood one of those big meetings i mean you look at the you look at the courses where this horse has been running uh, goodwood and newmarket you look at the figures on time form that uh, that he was earning and it, he he was always going to be always going to be tough to deny in here even with the uh, alive looking on paper USA contingent I mean no Kadar is one that both JK and I forgave for the for the trip last time and ended up going off an absolutely huge price and then our old friend friend of the podcast Digital Age another one that we that we gravitated towards but but uh Spanish mission win no surprise to us or anybody else for uh, Simcock and Spencer on the day. So with Digital Age do you think it was more trip or is it more now this is the first race where he didn't improve his buyer he'd gone five in a row before this one and he went from a 93 i think down to a low 80 yeah 83 was it more the trip or was it more something never, else never looked good right um the pace was actually coded red on time form which i thought was interesting and digital age was close to it but just didn't finish it didn't finish at all to a point where you know you my i think about the ground and I wonder if that might have been the deciding factor or some combination of the pace and the ground. It is interesting. A lot of these horses who end up in the brown barn, certainly not all of them, but a lot of them do seem like they have much more of an impressive burst when you're talking about ground where they can hear their hooves rattle. And they don't all seem to do as well when you're dealing with cut in the ground it's not exactly a weakness Uh, he's had plenty of horses that win when there is cut in the ground but it is something to take a look at i think with some of these runners and i might hesitate to bet digital age back in a spot where there was cut now for me when you look at the trip he was three wide on both turns usually for me i want to see horses saving ground in long races like that even spanish mission was only three wide in the back and he was about four or five wide going into the lane and he dueled and he got up in the last 16th. So for me, I think it was a lot more of the trip. I think also sometimes that the, that the ground can also be a reason for it, but also possibly, 
I mean, five improving races in a row with the buyers. I sooner rather than later, he's going to have a clunker in there. Is he not? Yeah. I'm Chad Brown. Isn't somebody whose horses usually bounce per se because they are so carefully handled and he gives so much time between races. And he also with his owners, he has patient owners who he can uh, really have his way of when they run. A lot of trainers have to run horses much more often than Chad Brown does. So I don't, I don't think that uh, – I mean, maybe regression is inevitable just in mathematical terms, but I don't think of it like a bounce in the case of Digital Age. I think there was something else going on here, and I, I wouldn't expe- I would expect him to, uh, to do better when we see his return to the races whenever that is. But I also wouldn't be surprised if something just went wrong and the horse now needs some time. So with those being the last few races that we were going to talk about, I had one other thing I wanted to bring up. There were only two $10 winners in the first week out of, I think it was 28 races. How do you play or do you tend to take more races off when the track seems more chalky? It's so fun to like talk about the long prices we pick and the stuff we do with that. And I know that a lot of horse players and a lot of listeners to this show and to the In The Money show, they're they're spreading around and they're trying to catch prices and, and that's what's going to make their big days. But for me... I, I'm not inclined that way. I, I tend to do better on mid prices or even, or even shorter prices. So that doesn't bother me. It's really about how much I understand what I think is going to happen in a given race and what I think the, the, the chances of the horse in question are relative to the price on the board. And we've talked about it before. I mean, I think you can get great value on even money shots if they should be shorter than even money. If they should win more than half the time, sign me up. I'm not somebody who just goes out there price hunting. I, I mean, I get it. I understand why a lot of people do that, but it's never been my game as a as a player. I love it when it happens. I love it when I see a horse that I think should be 6-1 to one and they're 15-1 to one and I bet them and they win and you tell people and you feel smart for a minute. That's great, but a lot more of what I do is I'll take two horses against the field and I'll get even money. And I think it should be, I think it's going to happen 60% of the time. And I do a lot better. I do a lot better with those type of situations in general, in my own personal wagering. I know that makes me unusual, but, and I get what you're saying about why some people might want to do that, but it doesn't really work that way for me. I definitely think it's interesting. I think that a lot of people, they just tell everyone, don't play favorites, don't play favorites, try and find these 20 to one shots. Well, it also depends on what kind of, you know, mentality you have. For me, I if I lose 10, 15 races in a row, I'm pretty shell-shocked. And I will, you know, what, like what happened with you at Saratoga even last year. Like if I start losing, you know, 15, 20 races, I kind of take a step back and really start almost playing out of book again and wait to like replenish a bankroll. I thought it was very surprising too for of the two $10 winners, one was Chad Brown again. And people say it's – all, all the time up at the bet squad booth it was it was chad's brown's world we're just living in it i mean <laughs> chad had one of the only two winners the other was james ryerson with dylan davis on the big miss marissa horse paid 39 dollars. what was the story think, with the chad runner i uh, remind me that story i believe that the chad runner it was the other horse in the stake race on opening day uh war of Oh right, the turf war, the the the, yep. the Marty Schwartz horse who was it was just too short. That was an interesting handicapping angle. 
I can't believe that horse paid that much. I, I, I blocked it out because I opted in the end, I opted not <laughs> to bet that race and I should have, but I remember seeing that horse at Saratoga and just having the note that the five and a half was too sharp. And it's a very interesting thing to pay attention to when they come down from Saratoga, where they run all the five and a halves to then running at Belmont, where the turf sprints are longer and, it's a subtle difference, but it's really, it's really important. That horse was definitely overpriced. And uh, yes, it's a red board, but I'm not, uh, you can feel good. I'm not telling you that I had it because I, I wasn't <laughs> smart enough to actually end up participating there, but I was happy for uh, Marty Schwartz and Parker Schwartz. Who's one of our friends from the, from the DG lounge to see their silks in the Belmont winter circle. And I think it's also interesting. We were talking Flav and Pratt and how we move horses up. Uh, Joel Rosario was on that winner. I think him and I don't know if I'd say it's the same style because Flavian is, I think is much better on the front end sometimes, but I definitely think that they're much better on the turf than the dirt for sure. That's interesting. I mean, Pratt from, I don't see Pratt day in day out, but that does match what I think is correct. Rosario to me, it's just when he's on, I mean, when he's on to me, he's, the best out of the gate, the best finisher, as good as Absolutely. anybody on dirt, as good as anybody on turf. I don't, I don't see that. Um, I and, and I'm not saying I'm right, but I the, the the idea that Rosario was better on turf than dirt isn't one that had occurred to me in my watching. But it makes me want to go back and look at some stuff some more. Spencer, you know, I'm not just the guest on the show. I'm also the actual producer. I'm used to guests producing me on the other show, and I always welcome it. So I'll just take that role for two seconds here since it is my uh, sort of my official job, too, and ask you to tell me a little bit more about this challenge, this handicapping challenge you were going to do for yourself. And is there a way maybe you could think of that certain listeners might be able to participate? So uh, Dick Mitchell's book, Common Sense Handicapping, uh, it's, I believe, the financial chapter he talks about starting off and becoming like a whole brand new player starting off at the basics so for me it's a it's a hundred race challenge i'm doing them in 20 in five 20 race cycles and my goal is to have a 20 percent return on investment starting off at win bets then place and show exactas and then moving on to horizontals and the goal will be to kind of work your way up the class ladder or whoever, if any listener is struggling with a certain type of race, whether it's allowances, uh, claiming races, stake races, and just really try to make a value line for that race where you look up, you try and figure out how many times a horse will win the race out of 100. And there's plenty of stuff online. You can just type in Barry Meadow Racetrack. Money Secrets at the Racetrack value line, and it'll literally pop up with how many races you think each horse would win. And I'm just going to try to uh, keep track of my stats. I'm going to post it uh, hopefully weekly for either you guys can retweet it or I'll just do it on my own personal handy or my own personal website, thedailygallop.net, or my own Twitter, uh, handy underscore capper. I just think it's interesting that people don't know how well they do at certain levels. They think that they're amazing on grass and they might be terrible on grass. And I just think that the more you know about what races you're good at, then you can gamble more. And the races that you're not doing so hot at, maybe you cut half your action on. I think it's smart. We talk about the importance of record keeping all the time. And and if you have even just a little bankroll to dedicate to it, you could do it through your ADW with $2 win bets. And then the ADW will track it for you. Now, I caution against getting too crazy 
um, in terms of small sample size stuff. I think you're going to see some patterns over the short term where, you know, you may miss 13 allowance races in a row just out of randomness. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be betting allowance races, but there, there's probably something to be learned about uh, the pools mm-hmm. you're playing in, about where, which surfaces or distances you have success with. And for me, at this point in my development as a player, I've had time where I've done extensive manual records. I'm not there right now, but using the ADW as a shortcut and then be able to do that same level of work and analysis, I think it's smart. When we wrote Six Secrets of Successful Betters all those years ago, Frank Scatoni and I, there was a whole chapter about how one of the things winning players have in common is that they have the ability to handicap themselves and find the right situations types of races, uh, stake amounts, whatever it is, they have the ability to analyze themselves and figure out where they're going to succeed. And it gets back to that poker idea of game selection and putting yourself in position where you can succeed. There's so much more to the game than just looking at a race and coming up with the optimal wager for that race. There's a a whole infrastructure behind it and doing the type of data mining project you're talking about, I think is going to really help you. And you have an open invitation to either reblog that at uh, inthemoneypodcast.com or, uh, you know, any help that we can provide uh, if you want any sort of further outlet for that kind of work. Cause I think it's a, an exploration that you'll learn from. And I think we'll learn something watching you go through the process and maybe we can apply it to ourselves as well. I really appreciate that Pete so much. And also for all the viewers out there, everybody on Twitter, please follow along. I think it'd be very interesting if a core group of us could kind of just talk each week, even if it's different tracks, just talking about different races and what, you know, it kind of becomes like a forum of what I miss on this horse. And it's not so much red boarding, but it's, People just need to ask for help sometimes. And a lot of us handicappers and just gamblers in general don't really want to ask for help. And I think if you see it a lot in poker is a big thing. There's message boards all over the country where it's just guys will put up hands, hand histories of what they've done. And in in two hours, there's 150 comments. Yeah, we we need a lot more of that. Jason Beam wrote the article earlier this year. Dave Gutfreund talked about it on the show earlier this year about how that's the kind of thing that can help us in our development. And again, you know, redboarding gets a bad name because nobody wants to hear how smart you were, especially in the immediate aftermath of the race. When you talk about the eight to one shot that you didn't mention beforehand, and then you're going on your little treatise about why it won. (laughs) That's incredibly obnoxious and nobody wants to hear it. But you know, we hope with this show a few days after the races, when we sit here and talk about why certain horses won, that there's some something that can be learned. And it's not just, OK, that one won because that one won because of this specific reason, that one won because of this specific reason to go back and say, no, here's how I looked at the race. Here's what the pace looked like going in. Here's the trainer who was cycling up all these type of things that we're talking about. You can't help but learn something. And it's not bad etiquette especially if everybody's a a willing participant in a forum like this show or like the the blog post you're describing and yeah i'd welcome you to either post them originally spencer or you know do it on your blog and we'll find a way to reblog it over at in the money podcast and i love the idea of listeners getting involved and having your site daily gallop our site in the money podcast.com be places where horse players can go to hang out feel a part of a community and learn something along the way sounds like a blast pete
I'd like to thank Peter Thomas Fornatel for being my special guest today. He is the In The Money Media president. In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.